Good morning, Conduit. Welcome home this morning. Pray that your uh, pray that your week was a blessing. Um, we spent a lot of time praying for you this uh, this this week uh, as we uh, started the we started the Lenten series or Lenten season. Lent is a uh, six week essentially or a forty six day. Not including Sundays, I guess if you want to get technical, it's a 40-day. But it's a 46-day period of uh, preparation and anticipation and expectation for what we celebrate during Holy Week. Uh, what happened on Good Friday and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the celebration on Easter Sunday. And so, this, uh, this series that we're in now, uh, is uh, we've, we've titled Easter People. We, we, are, we are an Easter people. Uh, we, don't just, we don't just celebrate a holiday on a particular Sunday in the spring or late winter of every year. Um, that's, not, that's not what I mean when I say that we are uh, an Easter pe- people. Uh, what I mean is that our, our whole lives, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, that our whole lives, our individual lives here, right? Our corporate lives here are built upon the truth that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead in triumphant victory over the penalty and power of sin and death, and that by expressing faith in that miraculous work, we too will experience that same resurrection. That is what it means to be an Easter people. Easter not being a holiday that we celebrate, but an identity that we have. It is, it is that reality. It is the reality of being an Easter people that, that should and does reframe our entire lives. In the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the, in the truth of our faith relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In the, in the hope and expectation of our own resurrection from the dead through Jesus Christ, our whole lives are changed. Everything is made new. Nothing remains the same. We see every we see ourselves differently through that lens of Easter. We see we should see one another differently. We should see the experiences of our lives differently. We, we experience joy differently. We see death and pain and sorrow differently. Our affections are changed. Our desires are changed. Our opinions should be changed. Our lives are fully and completely changed. We can't help but to tell others about the the change that has happened within us. We are not... And the the, the reality of that is that that it, it doesn't mean that we are plucked out of the realities of the world that we live in. But we... We are now decidedly focused and fixated on the glory that awaits us in the resurrection of the dead. And it is this hope 
this glorious and inexpressible joy that makes us an Easter people. Not just on the day that we celebrate Easter, but every day. Every single day. We are an Easter people. Now, for the next several weeks or so, um, we'll be looking at uh, studying, if you will, talking about reading scriptures about other uh, Easter people. Uh, these would be people that we encounter in the gospel stories uh, here and there. Um, for instance, Mary Magdalene and Peter, uh, Judas Iscariot, Pontius Pilate, um, Simon of Cyrene, the guy that carried the cross uh, for Jesus on his way um, up to Golgotha. We're going to be we're going to be spending some time looking at looking at the reality and the truth of Easter from many many different perspectives, um, asking the Lord uh, to speak to us on uh, on how how what we see in the gospel through these people's lives and stories and interaction with Jesus, um, how, he would, how he would use that to change us. Some of them, some of these people, they have, uh, they have really direct roles in the Easter or in the gospel narratives as we've come to know them. Uh, some of them have maybe what you would consider to be more subdued roles. For instance, you know, like we don't often talk a whole lot about Simon of Cyrene, the man that carried the cross for Jesus. But we talk a lot about Peter, right? Um, maybe we talk a lot about John the Baptist, but we don't really ever do a whole lot of talking about Judas Iscariot, right? And so uh, some of them have really prominent roles in our own understanding of the gospel story. Others of them have maybe more subdued roles, but, but, but all of them believe that that the Holy Spirit of God can use and speak, um, speak through His Gospel to us about them. Uh, so, whether, they, uh, whether these individual people are near to the events um, around the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or whether they are far from the, from the events, they all play uh, a pivotal role in God's Word to us. As we kind of traverse this Lenten season, preparing for what God might do in us, what God could do among us or through us. Uh, this week, we want, to talk, we want to talk a little bit about uh, the, I guess we're going to more talk about or explore both the message and the method of John the Baptist. Um, now, Last week I made maybe kind of this, I don't know if it's slightly offhand comment about how Jesus isn't afraid to dive into the messiest of messes that we bring into life. Um, in fact, in the, in the midst of the messiness is where, is where Jesus finds his home. Uh, now nothing could show, nothing could show that fact more clear than the uh, then the, the purpose or the message or who John the Baptist actually is. Long, we're gonna, we're gonna like hold, hold John the Baptist's place in the Easter narrative there for a second, right? 
And you might be asking, like, well, what does John the Baptist have to do with Easter? Right? Like, he's, he's three years... He, his ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, existed three years prior to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So what in the world does it have to do with the Easter story at all? Well, we'll hope to be able to talk a little bit about that, because as we'll see from the Gospel... It's not even really about John the Baptist himself personally. It's about, it's about the message that John the Baptist came to proclaim to the people to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. And as we prepare our hearts for the celebration of Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, we must rehear listen to and respond in a similar way to the same message that John the Baptist had for his people, we must hear it as well. We must be prepared to reckon with the reality of the message that John the Baptist brings, and we must also be aware of the method in which John the Baptist proclaims and prepares people for the coming of Jesus. Long, 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 into Israel's history, the nation of Israel's history, there had been prophesied about one, about a person, who would come to prepare the people for the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. Think about it, like maybe in these terms. The Israelite people had been waiting for years. Not... And not just years, but like hundreds of years, even generations for, for the one, right? That person that would come to set all that had gone wrong in their lives, all that had gone wrong in history, straight, right, and true. It would finally be the one that, that would make everything that has gone wrong in the nation of Israel, would make it finally go right. All of the missed expectations would be dealt with. All of the things that should have happened or could have happened but never did would finally be dealt with. All of the pain, all of the bondage, all of the slavery, all of the darkness, all of it would be taken care of. It's as if, like, generations upon generations of Israelite people had been collectively holding their breath for this great one to come, this anointed one, this set-apart one, this Savior, this Messiah. They had been waiting. They had been wondering. They had been watching. They had been hoping. Some of them had been preparing. And... And the words of the, the prophet Isaiah, who spoke on behalf of God regarding the coming of this great one, this Messiah, also pointed out that there would be one that would come who preceded the Messiah in order to prepare the way for his arrival. It would be one who was like, okay. I know you've been waiting for so long for the Messiah to come. Use this 
as a, as a kind of a data point in your hopeful expectation that there is going to come one, someone is going to come before the Messiah to help prepare the way for him to come so that you won't miss it, so that you will be prepared. Call it like labor or birth pains, right? A warning sign. The, the clouds in the proverbial sky on a rainy day. When you hear this person proclaiming this message, know that the kingdom of God through the Messiah is near. It is coming. Get yourself ready. Get yourself ready. We see this, uh, we see this warning, not this warning, but this proclamation from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, verses uh, 3 through 5. You might, it, might sound, it might sound familiar to you. And the reason it might sound familiar to you is because we see this in every single gospel account that talks about John the Baptist. And you might think, well, where did that come from? Where did that a voice of one calling in the desert prepare the way of the Lord? Like, that sounds, sounds weird, right? Well, every gospel account um, has it. Every gospel account uh, recounts the coming of John the Baptist. Um, but it was, it, was a, it was a quote from the prophet Isaiah who had, who had said, hey, uh, we're preparing the way. We're like, warning sign, warning sign, warning sign. The kingdom of heaven is near. And Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths in the wilderness, a highway for our God. Every valley should be raised up. Every mountain should be made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places shall become a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. These are the words of Isaiah saying, hey, hey, get prepared. A voice of one calling in the desert makes straight paths in the wilderness, a highway for our God. And if you, if you um, think about the imagery here that Isaiah uses, the valleys right, will be brought high. The mountains will be brought low. The rough ground will be made smooth and flat, right? So it's like every obstacle that may stand in someone's way, a deep valley, we're going to bring it up, going to make it flat. A high mountain, we're going to bring it down low, make it flat. A rough ground, don't worry, it's going to be like a plain. The pathway will be obvious. It will be simple. It will be clear. There will be no obstruction whatsoever for someone to prepare their hearts for the coming of this Messiah. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And every single Gospel writer uses these words from Isaiah. As a, for instance, in Luke chapter 3, we see almost, almost verbatim Luke, who was not even a Jewish man, right? He was a Greek-speaking man, was aware that the prophecy of Isaiah was, was, was taking part or was being, was being fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. 
Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. And so, here is this guy, John, whom was called the baptizer, who was known to live in the desert, in the wilderness places, wearing clothes of camel hair and eating locusts and wild honey, who stepped into the auspicious role of preparing those who would listen for the one that was to come. If you don't think if you don't think this is a this is a really interesting point here that that God can use you to proclaim the coming of salvation into someone else's life because of well I I'm just I'm not a good speaker or I don't have a great personality I'm not really charismatic I don't know a whole lot I don't like whatever the excuse right Whatever the excuse we may use to say, to step out of the role of proclaiming the goodness of God into someone else's life, right? See how the Lord uses the most, the most, I mean, how else do we say it? Weird of characters outside of the realm of normal people, normal, whatever that is, people to proclaim the goodness and the coming of the kingdom of God. There could not be a more strange person to be the one to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah than John the Baptist. An absolute ascetic of a person. A weird, weird guy by anyone's standards. Who would listen to him? But God had chose him God had marked him, right, to bring about the proclamation that he is coming, the one is coming, make straight paths for him, bring the mountains low, bring the valleys high, right, smooth out the pathway, he's coming. The question here was how, how, how in the world could a guy like John the Baptist prepare the people for the coming of the one, the Messiah. How could a guy who has virtually no like um, public charisma to his leadership, he's not like maybe not probably not a very articulate speaker. People probably got to try and make their way through the quirkiness of his personality to actually hear the message that's coming out. How in the world? would John ever go about this task? How was John going to prepare the people? Now, I believe, and it's, it's my assertion, that the way in which John prepared the people for the coming of the Messiah is an is a extraordinarily valuable lesson for you and I as we 
prepare people to come into relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not, it, it is not a message, it is not a, it is not a principle or a method that should be lost on us either. So, make sure we listen here. John's role was to point the people to someone greater than himself. If you have time to read into the Gospels maybe further this week, uh, you'll see that there were some instances where, where people wanted to try and create some competitive friction between John and his disciples and Jesus and, and his disciples. Like, oh, well, uh, you see that, that uh, hey, John, Jesus is amassing quite the uh, following of disciples and he's baptizing people just like you are. What do you think of that, John? Hmm? You came first. Your ministry started first. Right? You even baptized Jesus Himself. So I'm sure that you're kind of like, maybe got a little bit of a chip on your shoulder that now Jesus is like rushing in with all of this power and all of this authority and, and amassing a big following of your own. And so there were some instances where people wanted to pit John and his followers against Jesus and his followers as if they were in competition with one another. But John absolutely refused and continually, without exception, diminished his own worth so that others would not be confused that Jesus is Lord, I am not, John says. Jesus is the Savior, I am not. Jesus is the one that we have been waiting for. Jesus is the one that we've been preparing for. It is not me. If we look at a few examples here, we're already in the Gospel of Luke. So if we look at um, Luke chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. We see the people were waiting expectantly and they were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ, right? Like they were, you know, John comes on the scene, he begins to preach this message, right? He begins to baptize people. There's a lot of hubbub, a lot of energy around him. And so the people around them, they begin to, they begin to say, well, maybe, hey, maybe, maybe John is the one that we've been waiting for this whole time. Maybe, maybe John is the Messiah. Maybe, maybe this is it. They were expectantly and they were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all. He did not leave, he did not leave it up for imagination. He did not leave it up for wonder. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. In a similar way, in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, records essentially the same interaction, and John, again, deflecting attention away from himself and towards Jesus. 
John chapter 3, starting at verse 26. They, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, uh, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, they're speaking to Jesus, the one you testified about, uh, well, uh, he is baptizing, um, he, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Can you hear this? Can you, can you even kind of sense the spirit that is like, tied up in those words, like, I bet you're really angry about that, Jesus. There's this church down the road. They're baptizing all kinds of people, and, 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 and people are going, like, Pastor, you must be just like, you must see their full parking lot and be so jealous. Right? We, we, can, we, can, we can see and hear and feel that spirit, right? Even in, even in our experience, right? How does John reply? To this John replied, listen, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. We jump down into verse 30. John says this, he must become greater. I must become less. You want to know the you want to know the way, you want to know how John in his in his weakness, in his weirdness, and in his quirkiness could possibly ever be the one to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. It's a statement like that right there in John chapter 3, verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. This can become, this is a really, really good feeling. Listen, it is a really, really good feeling when people cling to us personally for hope. Let's be honest, okay? It makes us feel really good when people cling to us for hope, for a word, or for a a message from God. When, When people come to us for the ultimate truths about sin and life and death and eternity, it makes us feel like we we are doing something right. It makes us feel like it makes us feel like we're, we're important or we have, we have prominence in the kingdom, like we are well-respected, like people, are, people are, are wanting to be around us so that they can hear from the Lord through us. It feels good. It does. And when we are not careful, when we are not brutally self-aware, we can gather around ourselves, our own little cadre of disciples, making them into our image and setting them loose on the world in no better shape than they were when they came to us. The question is somewhat of a, um, 
somewhat of a rhetorical question because the answer is very clear. Do you want to see the people in your life come to know Jesus in a life-changing way? You each, and if, and if you don't, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit of God right now to call to, a, call to attention of your mind, personal mind, that one person right, that he wants to use you for uh, to, to see them come to Jesus. That, that you, are going to have a, you are going to have a pivotal role or part to play in, in the salvation, in their salvation to Jesus Christ. If you don't know, if you didn't know immediately who that person was, I'm going to ask the Lord to bring them to your mind right now and not let their face or their name like escape from your memory until, until you've prayed it, right? Until you've, 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 you've made yourself physically exhausted in the prayer for their, for their, for their salvation. Now the question there is, do you want to see people in your life come to know Jesus in a life-changing way? Do you want to know how, like John the Baptist did, prepare the way for them to meet Jesus? Like John prepared the people for the nation of Israel to meet or receive Jesus? If that answer is yes, right? Which, I think rhetorically speaking, we all answer yes to that question. You must become less so that Christ can become greater. You must decrease so that Christ may increase in their lives. The more you elevate yourself, the less you can elevate Jesus. The more you place yourself in competition even against other people to win souls or gain personal disciples, the less you can elevate Jesus in their lives. John gets it fully. He understood beyond a shadow of a doubt that he must decrease so that Christ may increase. That it was not about him at all, that it was all about Jesus. That we are not worthy to even unstrap the sandals that grace the feet of Jesus. That there is nothing about us that we should be elevating in the spiritual lives of anyone else. It's all about elevating the name and character and personhood of Jesus Christ to others. So the method that John used is one that we also can use. We must, like, listen, if we're, if we're, if we're about the task and the mission to see people's lives changed through relationship with Jesus Christ, then we must be committed to getting low. So that Jesus can, so that Jesus can be elevated. 
We must be committed to getting low. Not being in competition with each other. Not being in competition with this church or that church, right? There is no competition, right? The competition is between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, right? And if we are committed to the mission of seeing people's lives changed through the power of the gospel, that we must commit ourselves to decreasing so that Jesus may increase in others' lives. So the question there, the next question, the next logical question is, if elevating Jesus Christ above all else was the method or kind of like the philosophy that John used, what was the message that John used in order to draw people into relationship with God? This is, man. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. Plans to prosper you and to not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Is that the, was that the message of John the Baptist? It wasn't. No. It was not the message. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Was that the message of John the Baptist? Come to church on Sundays. Live your best life now. Was that the message of John the Baptist? Smiley, white-toothed preacher, right? That was not the message. Was, 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 it was not. Maybe John sat on top of a rock, got his guitar out, and sang the old hymn. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. See on the portals he's waiting and watching. Watching for you and for me. Softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling. This was not the message of John the Baptist. Right? The message of John the Baptist was not, hey, God's got a great plan for your life, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. This was not, this was not even in the ballpark. Right? John's, John's message surely surely sifted out those who were um, ill-equipped right, to step on the pathway of the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to hear me, okay? Granted, there are and were within the pages of Scripture many different approaches to proclaiming the message of the gospel. Okay? There were many different... Within Scripture, there were many different approaches to proclaiming the message of the gospel. Hear me, alright? There were not different messages, right? Not different gospels. Not, well... Little tributaries that actually get you to the same place. There was different intensities that different people used in order to um, help open up the spiritual eyes of people as they encountered Jesus, for instance. Like, 
it's very clear that John the Baptist had a very intense approach. He did not pull any punches. We see, in, we see in the ministry of Jesus that sometimes he spoke very tenderly and softly and gently to those who were humble and aware of their sin that they would be drawn into right the gentleness of Jesus that was offered to them. Right? That is an intensity. Very low intensity, but it is an intensity. And then... And then you see Jesus on the next page of Scripture completely like, just come come out of nowhere with with people who are living in a perpetual state of spiritual hypocrisy and called them flat out on the carpet to repent of your sins and you better better turn towards God, right? Um, You brood of vipers, you are like whitewashed tombs. You are clean on the outside, but you are dead on the inside. Like, we can certainly see that there are often varying approaches to the proclamation of the Gospel. The message doesn't change, but the approach does. Depending on who the person is and what the situation is. Jesus was gentle sometimes. He was harsh other times. Paul was the same way. But the message coming from John the Baptist was abundantly clear. You could not miss it. It was like a big neon sign in the sky above his head. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Repent. Repent of your sins. The kingdom of God is near. John came to preach a message of repentance and confession of our sins. He then baptized those who repented and confessed. We see in the Gospels, one Gospel, um, Matt will look in the Gospel of Matthew at this point. Matthew chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him, from Jerusalem and all Judea, the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. The message of John the Baptist was clear. Repent of your sins. They would come to him, they would confess their sin, they would repent, right? We're going to talk about repentance here in in a minute. John John would baptize them for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if the message of John was clearly and unequivocally a message to repent of sin, to confess and turn towards God, then 
it begs the question, and I don't want to leave it as just assumed, right? What does it mean to repent? What does it mean? Because, um, because you can hear that the, that the message of John was to repent of your sin and not have any idea what that means or what to do next. You could, you could take it to mean just be really sorry that you did that thing. Just be really sorry, that's it. What was John telling people to do when he said repent? Repentance means to turn away from your sin. It means to physically turn your back upon your sin. It paints a picture of us literally betraying the life of sin that we were living in and turning towards a life of righteousness, faithfulness, and love. It's as if the life of sin was our friend and our master, but in the act of repentance, we literally take the life that we were living and we turn our back upon it. We betray the old man that was, that was bonded and in bondage to sin. And we turn towards life in righteousness to Jesus Christ, in faithfulness to God's Word, and to love of God and love of neighbor. A repentance is a demonstrable or it's a demonstrated act in our lives. And John was not gentle in his approach to proclaiming repentance, at least not to everyone. All of the Gospels recount his words to those who came to see the spiritual spectacle that was going around, on around him and to play the spiritual game, but not actually turn towards God and away from their sin. Here in Matthew chapter uh, 3, we see this. We just read through six, verse 6, right? Confessing their sins, they were baptized by Him in the Jordan River. Verse 7. But when He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where He was baptizing, He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones right here, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's words were clear to them 
and they should be clear to us as well. You cannot enter the kingdom of God by association with someone else. You can't enter the kingdom of God because your parents did. Or because your family is a family of faith. You can't enter the kingdom of God because you have a history of faith practice. You can't um, enter the kingdom of God by attending church every Sunday or saying the right things or looking the part. John was very clear. And do not think you can say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. You enter the kingdom of God by confessing your sin Repenting of your wickedness and turning to God through a faith-filled relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the way. This is the path. But John goes, John goes further here. He actually does something that has fallen like way, way out of fashion in years and generations past. John actually judges the legitimacy of repentance by, by uh, the production of a person's fruit. John, John actually says to those who have come to take part in the spiritual dog and pony show, uh, listen, repentance is an act that produces fruit. He says, he says, produce, in verse 8, Matthew chapter 3, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is not the only gospel writer that, um, that includes that in their account of John's message as well. Is that, is that repentance produces something. What is he saying here? What, what is John? What is, what is the, both the undercurrent and the obvious reality that John is saying here? You cannot lip service your way through repentance. True repentance produces fruit. Luke's account of this conversation goes a little bit like this in Luke chapter 3, verse 9. He says, the axe is already at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, while it has become fairly fashionable to proclaim, hey, listen, you don't know my heart. Only God can judge me. It's true, okay? The reality of a life lived in a spirit and practice of true repentance is a life that bears fruit that all people can see. There is no such thing as invisible fruit of repentance. Like there's fruit of like I've been repenting in my life I, I, like, I, I walk with a spirit and a posture of, 
repentance and humility before the Lord. I have turned from my life of sin and wickedness. I have embraced relationship with Jesus Christ that completely changes the trajectory and, and day-to-day, the, the, like the day-to-day of my life. No one can see it because it's just something I hold in my heart. It's not actually something that produces fruit in my life. You're not fooling anyone. Certainly, you're not fooling God. The scripture is very clear that God cannot be mocked. Right? That we will reap what we sow. John actually gives the crowd some real-life examples of how they, in their own context, may display the fruit that shows that they have turned their back on their lives of sin and are turning towards a faith-filled relationship with God through Jesus. I believe this is in the Luke account that he does that. Yeah, in the Luke account, he does that. He, he actually gives the people some examples of how fruit is displayed as they, re- as they truly repent of their sin. Because they say in Luke chapter 3, verse 10, well, 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 what should we do then? If, if, if fruit is in keeping with repentance, as we repent, repent, fruit is produced and fruit is not invisible, it's for everyone to see. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, verse 11 of Luke chapter 3, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. The one who has food should do the same. The tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Well, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some of the soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay, right? Now, now does that mean that like these things that John lists in Luke chapter 3 are the sole fruit of repentance in your life? You, gotta be, like, you better go home and give away a tunic or two? Who's got a couple tunics laying around? Who actually even knows what a tunic is? That's what I thought, right? So the idea here is not that John is saying these are the only actual, like, specific fruits of repentance, right? He was speaking into the context that the people understood and would have experienced. But the point remains the same, is that as we repent of our sin, things change in our life in such a demonstrable way that those around us can see that something has changed. This is what John calls true repentance that produces fruit. And this is the spirit and posture that prepares our hearts for the coming of the kingdom of God. Because what John actually does he actually follows up with a very striking exhortation. We see it in many of the gospel accounts, right? He follows up with this striking exhortation by preparing, even further than once thought, the people for the ways in which Jesus will expose those who honor him with their lips but their hearts are far from him. And this is, we have, we have in some ways 
And in some, some periods and in some times, we have, we have separated this view or this truth of Jesus from Him, right? We have taken this role, we have somehow forgot <laughs> or not listened or not heeded the re- this reality. If we're looking in Luke chapter 3, verse 17, His winnowing fork, speaking of Jesus, right? His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What could this possibly mean? Well, I will tell you, um, it's not good. Well, I mean, it is good, I guess. You get to determine whether this is a... You get to determine whether or not this is scary or this is comforting. Whether this is a warning or um, whether this is a, um, uh, a, an, another instance where, where you can worship and praise God for His tremendous mercy on your behalf. You decide, right? So what is the picture that John is using here? John, John, is, John is using, a, John is using a, a, a picture that everyone there would have understood, right? The picture of a threshing floor. The threshing floor was the place where, um, where the, 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 wheat, the annual wheat harvest was sifted. You ever seen a stalk of wheat? It's got a long hollow stalk to it and at the top of the wheat are these heads they're called berries actually wheat berries stalks of wheat were cut in the fields and then they were usually stacked and dried there for for a period of time and then they were gathered and then they were piled on the threshing floor to be prepared for further processing now the the stalks of wheat and the wheat berries at the top uh, were generally uh, considered to be, you know, uh, beneficial or they're usable, right? But there was other parts of the wheat stalk that were um, kind of thin and wispy and didn't really have much, didn't really have much uh, usable purpose for processing in any ways, and that was called considered the, the chaff. It had been like the dusty part of hay if you were to pick it up. What the harvester would do on the threshing floor is he would take his winnowing fork, which would be like a, a, a pitchfork, like a three-pronged pitchfork with big gaps in between them, and he would come underneath the stalks of wheat, right? And he would come underneath and he would fluff it up and then he would toss it into the air. And what would happen is that the threshing floor was situated um, against the prevailing wind. They would use the wind as, to their advantage. And the wind would come through as the harvester threw up the wheat. The wind would come through and would blow away all of the chaff. And the wheat berries, that which was usable and desirable and what they wanted to harvest because it was heavier than the chaff, would fall back to the floor. And then the harvester would come back and collect the collect the harvest, the wheat berries, 
and put it in the barn for further processing. John used this analogy to help us and to help his listeners develop a picture of our future. You and I, we will stand on the proverbial threshing floor and Jesus with His great winnowing fork will sort us as one separates the wheat from the chaff. And while we may be able to fool others or at times even fool ourselves, we will be unable in that moment to fool Jesus. This was what Jesus this was what John was preparing his pe- preparing the people for. Repent of your sins, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The one with the winnowing fork is near. Produce fruit that is in keeping with repentance. How then should we respond? How do we prepare for the coming of kingdom of the coming of the kingdom of God? How do we prepare for the threshing floor? This is the message of John. Repent of your sin. This is our message for you this morning. Repent of your sin. Confess your sins before God. Turn towards God in faith-filled relationship with Jesus Christ. Let your life bear the fruit that displays repentance is your posture. We may be thinking, well, I, I have repented, Right? And I want, to be, I want to be clear here because sometimes this can be made, um, this can be made unclear. I want, to be, I want to be as clear as possible. Uh, we don't repent just once. Okay? Uh, repentance, is not a, repentance is not a one-time thing or a one-time behavior. Well, listen, I repented at that men's conference way back in 1983. What more does he want? Right? Um, it's not that those, it's not that one, it's not that that one moment where you finally see your sin in the, like through the eyes of Jesus, that you, that you repent of the life of wickedness and that you turn toward, it's not that that doesn't matter, okay? It does matter, right? But, but understand that, that we, it is necessary for us to repent, repent many times, we, re- we repent as we, as we recognize daily our tendency to climb back out of the casket that Jesus resurrected us from when he gave us new life. Just like the Israelites constantly wanted to go back into Egypt, constantly wanted to go back into bondage, we, we constantly want to return to a life of sin. And it is necessary for us as we recognize our tendency to return to our sin like a dog returns to its vomit, that we repent once again for that tendency to walk away from Jesus and walk towards a life of sin. But I also want to be clear about this one thing. God is not a taskmaster who is sitting up in heaven 
keeping a daily tally of how many sins versus how many repentances you have done. Like, oh, well, geez, I hope Cameron doesn't die when he, on his way home because there were three sins from last Monday that he did not repent of. And those three, th- those three sins, they're still on the list. And I haven't given him the check mark of repentance yet. Because sometimes we can get into a hyper-legalistic format of thinking that like, if, if we don't repent of every single thing right when it happens, and if we have a sin that we're not aware of, that we don't repent of, then we're going to get to heaven and God's going to be like, oh, I'm sorry, man. Like, there's this thing and you didn't repent of it and so I don't know what to tell you. As if there is no, like, I'll say it like this. We must understand repentance also within the context of God's gracious love to us. Okay? That repentance is something that we do when we become aware of sin in our lives. So it's like a like a, it can happen as a, like in an individual instant. Oh, the Holy Spirit of God has made me aware of how I have sinned in this moment. I Lord, I repent of that sin. I turn I turn my back on it. I I turn towards you again. But repentance is also a general spirit and posture that we walk in consistently and constantly. That Lord, I am actively turning away from a life of sin. I am actively turning away from a life of sin. And I am actively turning away from a life of sin. It is that spirit and posture of repentance that expresses that we understand the gracious love of God even in the midst of the reality of the threshing floor. Our lives are meant to display that we are in submission to God's Word and to God's Spirit and that by virtue of that submission, we will be consistently trusting in the grace and power of Jesus to help us turn our back upon sin and turn towards God in faith-filled relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, the Word of God says that God does not want any to perish, but to all to come to eternal life through Jesus Christ. God does not, God does not delight in the act of judgment of our sin. God celebrates the, God celebrates the, the repentance of of all those who turn from sin and turn towards God through relationship in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. God desires that all would come to know the freedom that is offered from bondage to sin as we confess our sin to Him and repent of it and turn towards relationship with Jesus Christ. But God is also not leaving us with, with excuse that God, God is holding us to account for the, for the sin that so easily entangles. And God is calling us 
through his Holy Spirit, as witnessed and evidenced in his word, through the ministry of John the Baptist, through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Listen, church, repent of your sins, confess them before God, because the kingdom of God is near. Because we will stay, because the, the axe is at the root of the tree. And any tree that does not produce fruit that is in keeping with, with repentance will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is not a bluff. This is not a good, this is not just a, a beneficial practice for your mental health. This is a necessity for your eternal trajectory. To turn away from your sin and to turn towards God. God is gracious. God is merciful. Not wanting that any would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. And He is calling you this morning to experience the graciousness and magnitude of His love as you repent of your sin, as you confess it before Him, and as you find Him in the gentleness of His heart for you to receive you in the midst of your turning. Not harshly and not with judgment, but in tenderness and in mercy. Welcome home, He says, son. Welcome home, he says, daughter. I have been waiting for you. There have been people praying for you. Turn from your sin. Walk with my son, Jesus. I want to invite the worship team back forward or back up this morning. And as they're getting ready, um, <clears throat> I want to say this, okay? Listen. If you are hearing the Lord, if you are hearing the Holy Spirit of God this morning, calling your name, calling you to repentance, do not ignore His voice. Confess your sin before Him that you may be forgiven. Turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That time of refreshing may come. As we repent of your sin, we, we, must, we must confess as well. And as has been the experience in the personal experience in my life, and I'm guessing in yours, is that when God 
when God convicts me of sin, right? He convicts me in the specifics. Cameron, you, you have sinned in this way. You have done this. You have said this. You have turned your back on this. You are, you are living in sin here. So if God has done that in your heart this morning, and you would like to come forward as we're worshiping here, to repent of your sin, right? We want to welcome you to come and to respond Respond to the respond to the movement of the Holy Spirit on your life. And I will I will pray with you if you want me to. We will pray alongside of you. But I, but I will tell you that we will ask the Lord together. We will we'll conf- confess your sins specifically. Lord, I confess that I have I repent of I turn towards you, Lord. Give me, look, give me your grace and your power through Jesus Christ to walk with you and away from my sin. You gotta get specific. You gotta get specific. Myself, Pastor Luke, others here around the room, we are, we are prepared to pray with you and to pray for you. This is not a, this is, these, these are not, these are not kneelers of judgment, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to go back later and write down in my journal all of the sins that you have confessed while you're up here. It is, our, it is our honor and it is our joy to partner with you in faith as you respond to the call of the Holy Spirit to repent of your sins and confess them before the Lord that you might experience freedom from sin in relationship with Jesus Christ. I invite you forward. This is not a, this is not a half invitation. This is a full invitation to come this morning and to confess. Whether it's the first time that you've ever repented of your sin or whether you know I have been living in sin and I have been refusing to turn my back on it and I have been afraid and I have been running away from God but no longer and no further. Today is the day that I hear the voice of the Lord. Prepare your hearts for the coming kingdom of God. Repent and confess. We welcome you forward this morning. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit settle in the room, Lord. May it give strength weak knees may your Holy Spirit give courage to fearful souls 
May your Holy Spirit give confidence to doubtful minds. Lord, and now, would you let a spirit of repentance and confession fall upon this room? May sin be revealed, Lord. Lord, and may it be revealed in the light of your gospel that Jesus Christ has come to proclaim freedom from the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, wholeness and peace to all those who turn to Jesus, Lord, freedom from sin and bondage. Lord, let our confession and repentance be a flood of worship to your throne, Lord, and we thank you in your mercy that you receive our confession, that you receive our repentance. Lord, in the graciousness of your love holds us there. Lord, break loose in this room. Break loose in this room, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen. Do not give up this opportunity. If you're feeling the call of the Holy Spirit upon your heart and life now, come forward. We will pray with you. We will pray next to you. We will leave you alone. We are here for you. Amen. Together with all of the saints, may have power to grasp how high and wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the measure of all of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Praise be to God. Mm. Conduit, you are loved. Have a fantastic week.